uh, gives us strength and hope for tomorrow. We are uh, so thankful to be those who are yours, to be able to sing this truth uh, openly and to gather together to rehearse these truths uh, with each other, uh, for each other, and uh, then to you, O oh God, who saves us and redeems us. And so we're grateful for this time. We ask uh, your blessing as we uh, approach your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, I am excited tonight to begin a series that we will uh, go through uh, during Session C, a series that you know is called Stories You May Have Heard. Stories You May Have Heard. Uh, We want to take a fresh look at old truth, Old Testament truth. Now, these are stories that you may have heard in... Sunday school with the help of a flannel board, or you may have heard via veggie tales with the help of a tomato and a cucumber and some grapes and peas, or you may have heard in a children's storybook Bible. Uh, These are all stories you may have heard, but that you and I may not understand, at least in the way that we should. You see, we understand the storyline and the ins and outs of these great stories. We are familiar with the ideas and the facts and the numbers in these stories. Uh, But what exactly is the biblical truth found in these stories? What is the wisdom found in these stories? Uh, What is the right application of these stories? Now, if your own story is anything like mine, you may not have seriously considered any of these stories uh, since a long time ago, before coming to college, Uh, since maybe before you discovered the doctrines of grace, or since maybe before you really wrestled with ideas like predestination, or since before maybe you really did battle in your quiet times with Romans, or Uh, Hebrews, or the first chapter in Ephesians. And so because you've had all these formative moments in your college years uh, where Paul's writings and and perhaps the Gospels and, of course, James have come to the forefront of your understanding of our faith, these old stories are just some past dispensation or they're just the former times of Israel's disobedience or They're simply, as Hebrews puts it, the shadow of the good things to come. Perhaps you are a New Testament Christian, but in the sense that maybe it's in a way that's more so than is fair to your Bible. Maybe you're somewhere else. Maybe you're just straight up too busy. And whenever you go read your Bible, you flip to something in the latter half of your Bible, or in the middle where the pages are worn out in the book of Psalms. There's a few brilliant scholars at a church recently that uh, came up with, based on a faithful translation, their own translation called the Legacy Standard Bible, the LSB. The very first LSB to come out was a Bible we can call it a Bible, 
with the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs about yay thick. And we would make fun of it. It fits in your back pocket real nice. It's not a sword, it's a dagger. But in reality, is the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs really what you could get by with in your Christianity? Do we read the great stories of heroes, men and women of faith, who followed a faithful God? And so whether you're in a place where you just have not read the Old Testament or you haven't in a while. These are stories you may have heard. And these are all reasons uh, why, in talking with some of the other leaders, uh, that we wanted to jump into this series. Now, before we begin our first uh, story, I want to give you a little bit of the heart behind this series. Just a little bit more of what we should be looking to learn over these next four weeks. Uh, you could say, by the end of these four weeks, these are lessons you may have learned. I have five lessons, and we'll go quick on these. The first lesson is this. When God speaks, we listen. When God speaks, we listen. Uh, I think of Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And now certainly, the Intent in those verses is to show us the pinnacle of God's revelation is through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to point out, we ought not to bypass the many times and the many ways that God has spoken in the Old Testament. And so we will hear God speak in these stories. You see, with this series, let's breathe in the fresh air of Old Testament truth as New Covenant believers. When God speaks, we listen. Number two, a lesson you may have learned at the end of all of this is that there is always more to discover. There is always more to discover. You see, one of the goals of this series is to prove the very basis of the very need for the series. It's to show that four weeks in the Old Testament can and should be, Lord willing, fruitful, yet it should show you just how much there is left to still harvest. You see, no matter how much you read the Bible, there will always be more to find, always more to read, always more to discover. It's the inexhaustible nature of the scriptures. And so let's approach this series desiring, looking to grow in our humility and in our understanding, not just of the Old Testament, but, just, but, but of just how little we know of God's truth. Uh, let's go into this series and let's come out of this series with the attitude found in Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Reason number three or lesson number three is different genres require different tools. Different genres require different tools. Let's 
little trip into the Old Testament will give us the chance to flex our Bible interpretation muscles a little bit. Uh, We will see together uh, that to mine the truth of Old Testament narrative is different than in James, is different than the Gospels, is different than the Psalms, is different than Paul's writings. We'll be able to together put new hermeneutical tools on our tool belts, how to look at context, themes, backgrounds, uh, rhetorical and linguistic elements. And so let's look to sharpen our minds for how to read and understand all of God's revelation. Different genres require different tools. A lesson number four that I hope we'll have learned is that biblical truth is interconnected. Biblical truth is interconnected. Uh, Over and over again, we will see old truths that we already know and love. Things about God, about his faithfulness and his purposes, his promises, things about Jesus, the Messiah, uh, things about redemption, faith, blessing, and about our own hearts. We will see these truths, truths that perhaps we know simply from the New Testament. Uh, Things we didn't know Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament on, or the things we hadn't seen Jesus fulfilled in his life and his ministry. We'll see truths and themes we didn't know had roots in the Old Testament. I think we will be surprised, wonderfully surprised, at the interconnectedness of the truth of Scripture. The fifth and final lesson I hope we'll have learned by the end of this series is that when we are faithless, He is faithful. When we are faithless, He is faithful. Over and over again in this series, we will see God's people fail. We'll see them lack faith and demonstrate distrust in God's promises. We'll see them sin and disobey. Well, we ought not to think that we are so unlike them. We too lack faith. We too demonstrate distrust. We too sin and disobey uh, just like Israel did. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 says this, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so the Old Testament, Israel's example, uh, and even this series by extension are a mercy from God to show us Uh, negative sometimes, but positive sometimes, examples of faith uh, in a faithful God. And so as we embark on this series, we'll see the truth of 2 Timothy 2.13 ring true. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. 
Uh, so why don't you pray with me as we begin this series and we see uh, in these stories we may have heard old truth made new. Father, as we approach this series, help us to see the transcendent truth of your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that you give us humble hearts, ready to see how much we don't know, and then to receive uh, this truth with joy, uh, and then to hunger for even more. So Spirit, work in our hearts, we ask, and Christ be magnified as we look at these stories that point to you, to you, O oh God, be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we consider this genre of Sunday school classics, the very archetype of these stories you may have heard is David and Goliath. You may have another story in your mind, and we may get to one of those as well. You may have thought Noah, or Moses in the burning bush, or Jonah, and you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, all passages Riley is still considering to do. Uh, but tonight, we will look at David and Goliath. You see, David and Goliath has become a cultural concept in the Western world. It's the small guy facing inestimable odds, defeating the giant. Uh, whether it's in sports and you're looking up at Aaron Judge, or it's in politics and you're facing the guy who's probably going to win, or it's in business and it's small company versus large. David and Goliath embodies the underdog concept. Another angle we are familiar with, maybe from more of a Sunday school or youth group perspective, is we are taught from the story of David and Goliath that we are David. We are to be like David. We are to be brave. We are to have courage. We are to slay the giants in our lives. But it's not just in Sunday school where these kinds of reductionistic, moralistic lessons are drawn from this great story. Now, some of those themes are indeed there and valid conclusions from this story. Uh, but I want to give you a little taste because this week I went on a journey. I listened to a lot of sermons this week. A lot of really, really short and really, really bad sermons this week. I'm not saying anything about my own preaching, but these sermons were not good. But they were all about David and Goliath. Uh, among other lines from these sermons, some of the main sort of preaching points were these. Goliath must fall. Slay the giants of anxiety and addiction in your life. Be like David. Face your fears. One really famous evangelist said this line, Stand firm, stand tall, fight back, and go kill some giants. And he immediately left the stage as if to go get his paycheck or something. Another famous pastor said this, 
we see in this story a path in our lives that leads us to freedom. Goliath must fall. If there is a giant in your life today that is demoralizing you and stealing God's glory from your life, then it is God's heartbeat that that giant go down and you begin to walk in the freedom that Christ has provided for you. That'll preach. Some things that are okay in there. What do you mean by stealing God's glory from your life and that the giant must go down and you begin to walk in what exactly kind of freedom in Christ? And we could nitpick his quote, but I think we get the point, the core of uh, many of these problematic interpretations of David and Goliath is that we've made this story all about us. Uh, We've made a story that is about Yahweh, God himself, about us. You see, the hero, of course, right, is David. And in American Christianity, we want to be the hero, and so be like David. Face your fears. Slay those giants. But the story of David and Goliath is a story primarily about God. A a story that demonstrates uh, the faithfulness and the power and the salvation of a good and faithful God. And so tonight we'll see three lessons from David and Goliath about faith in a faithful God. Let's begin by setting the stage. We'll get to those three points later on, but we need to set the stage and look a little bit into this story. So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. It's right before 2 Samuel. Use your table of contents, no shame. 1 Samuel 17. This story spans the whole chapter, uh, but we won't read it all. We'll read bits and pieces as we uh, put together this great story. For Samuel 17, look at the first few verses. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now here we find Israel at battle with the Philistines in the Valley of Elah. Uh, Two mountains and a valley between, an army on each side. And uh, throughout 1 Samuel so far, the Philistines have been a problem for Israel. Israel has found itself in constant conflict with the Philistines, this Canaanite group who inhabit the southern region along the coast of the promised land, the land that God had promised to his people Israel. 
Now, animosity has built between these two groups over the course of a few years, over these past few chapters. And in the first battle, 30,000 Israelites die. And in chapter 4, verse 11, at the end of that battle, the ark of God is captured by the Philistines, which begins this back and forth between God's people and the Philistines. During this time, Saul is appointed king over God's people, and Saul is this distinguished, picturesque, seemingly ideal king. He's tall and handsome. He's like Andrew with a bunch of muscles. And Saul wages war against the Philistines, uh, and successfully so at first at least. And then his son, Jonathan, in chapter 14, also defeats the Philistines and takes over a garrison. 1 Samuel 13.4 catches the vibe between these two groups. It says, Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And so here in chapter 17, we find Israel and the Philistines encamped again against each other, ready for battle at this valley called Elah. There has been, so far, much bloodshed on both sides. But this battle, as we see, and maybe you know, takes a different form. It's representative warfare. Each side is to send out an individual to fight on behalf of his people. Look at verse 4, and we see that representative warfare. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was... 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now Saul, uh, excuse me, uh, Goliath, this Philistine is uh, approximately nine feet nine inches. And Saul Uh, The king of Israel is uh, taller than anyone in the land of Israel, but is dwarfed in comparison to this 
great Philistine. And this Philistine also has an impressive armory. In fact, this description is the most extensive description of armor and weapons in the entire Old Testament. Uh, this Philistine's chainmail, uh, just what he's wearing over his clothes, is 126 pounds. And just the tip of his spear, not the spear, but the, the tip of his spear, is 15 pounds. And he needs an entire other person to hold his shield. And that's just one of two shields in all likelihood uh, given uh, armor in this day. Uh, Goliath is a formidable opponent to say the least. And here he is beating his chest, defying the Israelite army, seeking a challenger. But knowing that as far as the odds go, He'll probably win, and the challenge is clear. Mano y mano, loser, all of you are servants. We look at this and we think it would be, man, sort of a David and Goliath situation. Because it is. Who can stand against this great warrior man? Barely even a man. Verse 16 tells us that Goliath issues this challenge morning and evening for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 11 shows us what we will see throughout this whole passage. That God's people are afraid as they face this literal giant of a man. Verse 11 says they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now the text goes on to tell us that David, who is the newly anointed to be king that happened in chapter 16, uh, and who is also in Saul, the king's service as a court musician, David is given this task to visit his brothers, his three older brothers, who are at battle at Elah, and bring them some bread and some grain and some cheese, uh, a little wartime charcuterie, if you will. He's also to bring a token back from his brothers to give to his father Jesse to show them they are alive and well and here's something to hold on to until they come back for more. And so David brings these provisions to the Israelite camp and as he makes his way to greet his brothers on the front line in the encampment. Look at verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Notice the repetition in verse 24 of this fear amongst the Israelite camp. But the end of verse 23 shows us God had an appointment for David. You see, as he brings these uh, breads and, and cheese to his brothers and says hi, he hears uh, the giant defying the army of Israel and God himself. Goliath is just doing his routine. He's done this for 40 days and 40 nights. What's another day? No one's going to come. 
Well, here in this text, as we move forward in the chapter, David has a series of three conversations. Conversations that demonstrate what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the people in the Israelite camp. But three conversations that demonstrate what's going on in the heart and the mind of David. As he has now heard Goliath defy God and Israel. David is, even as young as he is here in 1 Samuel 17, he's probably 18 to 20 years old. David is a man who fears God and has faith in God and has a passion for God's glory and fame and will not take slander to that God's name. You see, in the face of the Philistine who is defying God and God's people, David will not back down. And so we see here in these dialogues our first lesson from this great story, a story that's about God. Great faith sees as God sees. Great faith sees as God sees. That is to say, uh, faith is not deterred by a giant or a giant of a situation, but sees as God would see. Well, the moral of the story here isn't be like David in the sense of being brave or having courage. It's the substance of the faith that David demonstrates in this story that is the subject of our interest. As David, as I mentioned earlier, is anointed king in chapter 16, we see an important truth that reverberates through this story in chapter 17 and through the rest of First and Second Samuel. Look at chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. When they came, he, that is Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The eyes of faith look to God in the face of adversity and sees as God sees. Faith is not oblivious to the situation. It sees the giant scowling right there. But faith also sees God. And faith fears God. And faith knows God is far greater and far more powerful and far more faithful than to leave His own without cause. And so with humble, resting confidence in God and in His faithfulness to His promises and in His power to deliver his people, faith sees as God sees. It looks not at outward appearances or apparent impossibilities, but at the honor and the glory of God at stake and acts to uphold God's name. David demonstrates this kind of great faith here in this story. 
You see, David is fixated on the glory of God and the majesty of his God. And that Goliath is openly defying his God to David is a problem. Because David has great faith in a faithful God. Now David does indeed demonstrate bravery, courage. But that bravery, that courage, is a consequence of the kind of faith David has in God here. And we'll see in these three conversations that David, in his great faith, looks to God and sees as God sees. Verses 24 to 27 show us David's first conversation with the Israelite soldiers. Uh, Look at verse 25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Notice the difference between the Israelites and David here and how they see and how they talk about and how they understand the situation to the Israelite soldiers, Goliath is defying Israel. To David, Goliath is defying, verse 26, the armies of the living God. Uh, David's faith and therefore his focus is dialed in on God. The power of the living God to deliver his people. Yahweh of hosts. Verses 28 to 30 show us a second conversation that David has. This time it's between David and his oldest brother, Eliab. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. It's hard to say here whether Eliab is still jealous that he wasn't anointed king in the last chapter or what his issue is we can just see he's being an older brother. What was supposed to be a catch-up sesh over bread and cheese on the front lines is now a sibling squabble. Some of you may know about that. Well, David's faith here remains steadfastly on God and the problem of this Philistine defying God and God's people... Eliab sees only David is here to watch the action. David sees the possibility of God working through somebody, maybe him here. 
And all Eliab sees is the impossibility of the situation. Eliab sees like man sees. And David sees with the eyes of faith. Finally, in verses 31 to 37, we see a third conversation between David and Saul, the king. And by now, word has spread that this young shepherd boy who has left his few sheep with somebody else, that he wants to take on the Philistine. And it's here that the ironies and the contrasts of this story really come to life. David stands face to face with Saul, the king of Israel. Saul, the tall and handsome, ideal king, taller than anyone in Israel. And so if height is some kind of requirement in this contest against uh, the tallest man on earth at that time, Saul might very well be the best match in the camp for Goliath. And yet it's clear here in this conversation, Saul would rather risk somebody else's neck than face the Philistine himself. Uh, Think back to the reward that Saul places on Goliath's head. Um, Free from taxes, you get to marry his his daughter, and all kinds of uh, things that come with marrying into the king's family. Look at verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. What the narrator of 1 Samuel wants us to see is that it's not just that Saul lacks courage. He does. It's that in contrast To David, he more importantly lacks something else. He lacks a faith in God. He lacks a fear of the Lord. He doesn't have this reverential awe. He doesn't have a worship, a fearful and humble confidence in the creator and sustainer of all things. Ants and giants included. God is God over all and Saul doesn't know that or doesn't believe that. Saul and the Israelite soldiers in Eliab demonstrate a fear of what they can see, their situation and the apparent plight, and it's the perfect foil, the perfect contrast for the great faith that David demonstrates, a faith in God 
and his power to deliver. A faith that sees as God sees. You see, whereas man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Whereas the natural man looks at the giant, it looks at the situation, looks at the trial or the circumstance, the eyes of faith look to God with a trusting heart, saying, God, what must I do? David sees the Philistine. He does. But he sees standing far above the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh of hosts, who delivered his people out of Egypt. And over and over again, he delivered his people from the hand of their enemies. And in his own life, David has seen God deliver him from lion and bear. And he is confident God can do it again. God will be faithful to deliver those who are his. You see, it's important to know, David understands, great faith isn't great in and of itself. Great faith isn't confident in its own intellect or its own abilities. It's not reliant on itself. It isn't sure of itself. This kind of faith is sure of one thing and one thing only the ever-faithful God. Jeremiah 9 puts it this way. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In 1 Samuel 17, in the following verses, in truly outwardly focused form, Saul tries to give David his awkwardly large-sized armor and weapons. And if you go through the pieces of armor, it's like Saul is trying to create a best Israelite version of Goliath. Uh, down to the very elements of the armor. Let's rejoin the action in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. You see, David had rejected Saul's armor and said, instead, I'll take my shepherd's things into the battle. A staff, a sling, and five smooth stones. And Goliath looks at David and thinks, well, if I beat this little kid, it's not going to win me any accolades. And so he curses David. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and, a ja- and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
and I will give you, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. A gruesome sight. God gives victory to the faithful David who saw like God saw. Now David stepped forward in faith not knowing what would happen, but knowing that God would preserve his own people. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered the camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Now this is a story you may have heard, so the ending is no surprise. But as we consider the truth in this story, there's a second truth to consider here. And that truth is that God is true king. God is true king. See, one common mistake we make when we read Old Testament stories like this one is that we rip them out of their context. We take these two pages out of our Bibles and we read them like an episode of our favorite TV show. Uh, We treat them as independent accounts with no apparent connection whatsoever to the rest of what's around them in the biblical text. Uh, No connection in history. No connection in redemptive history. No connection in principle. Well, as you read the Old Testament, you must read in context. You've got to dig a little bit for these details and ask yourself some questions and maybe read a commentary or two or uh, look up even a web page or two about the book that you're reading and find these kinds of answers to questions like this. Who who wrote the book? Uh, Who was it written to originally? Uh, What was the purpose of this book or document or letter? Uh, Who are the main characters, the main people? How are those people connected to God's promises? Uh, How do the people in this story demonstrate great faith or lack thereof? And 
It may be the most important question to ask yourself when you're reading the Old Testament, especially, but when you're reading Scripture, is what is God doing here? These are all questions to ask yourself as you read, uh, especially Old Testament narrative. Uh, Well, the wider context of our passage, 1 Samuel 17, uh, gives us a valuable perspective on the truth that God wants us to see here tonight. You see, 1 and 2 Samuel are all about Saul and David, uh, the contrast of Israel's first two kings. It's a drama of evil and good, outward and inward, failure and faith. In the narrative of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we see David, overall at least, succeed as God's true and chosen king. But what's more important to see in 1 and 2 Samuel is that God is true king. God is king over his people. And he is king of all the created order. Because he is the creator of all things. In 1 Samuel, God's people demanded a king. Look at 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8. Look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In that text, Samuel goes on to warn Israel of the dangers of having a king. A lot of them being that he'll just take your stuff. America, with its king and kings, is not that much different. It's what human rulers, part of what they do, yet established by God. Established by God. And even uh, God recognizes my people are not rejecting you, Samuel, even though they call you old, uh, they are rejecting me, God says. Look at verses 19 to 20 of chapter 8. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. He had warned them against it. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The irony of Saul, king of Israel, he shall go out and fight our battles. Well, what happened when there was a battle to fight? The king didn't step up. But in chapter 8, Samuel finds them, or going into chapter 9, Samuel finds them, Saul, as 
king, and he's the perfect king. He looks like it, at least. But we need to go back. Turn to Deuteronomy 17, and we need to see this passage really quick. Deuteronomy 17, both in your Bible and in history, Deuteronomy is before 1 Samuel, right? Can you get that? It's before 1 Samuel, both in history, actually, and also in your Bible, Deuteronomy 17. This is before First uh, and Second Samuel. Deuteronomy 17, uh, look at verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. You see, back in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving Israel, another generation, the law of God. And in that, he has a little prediction. A little prediction that God gave to his servant Moses that Israel, when they came to the land that God had promised them and delivered them into, that they would instead say, God, you know what? We're good. Thank you for the land. We want a king. And not only did God predict in his omniscience that this would happen, he got the reason right. Uh, God, we're good. In fact, we want a king so that we can be like the nations around us. And in Deuteronomy 17, Moses goes on to lay out the requirements and the responsibilities of uh, the future Israelite kings. And we see throughout history, some of them tried and a lot of them failed at uh, the responsibilities that God had set out for kings. Uh, The point is that God, who is always true king over his people, no matter who's on the throne in whatever land you live in, God is king, and God knew. He knew that they would want a human king, and he gave them Saul. And and as we stand at the Valley of Elah in 1 Samuel 17, uh, he gave them Saul. He would later give them David, the man after God's own heart, who here at the Valley of Elah would slay the giant and be the instrument of deliverance for God's people. You see, God rules and reigns, and he will use human kings to do his bidding as the one great true king over all. God had promised Abraham, the father of Israel, in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And he says in that promise, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so when, in 1 Samuel 17, the Philistine defies God and defies God's people, God, the one true king, defends and preserves and delivers his people. Here at Elah, God, the true king, is working to save and preserve them through his servant, David, who was to be king. That's why David can, with no knowledge of the future, proclaim in verse 
46. This is going to happen. I'm going to kill you, Goliath. That's the reason or the result that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly, all Israel may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hands. David said more than he knew at Elah. David and Goliath, a story so famous on its own, fits right into the tapestry that is redemptive history, that God, the only true king over his people, would use a shepherd boy to fulfill his covenant promise yet again in preserving his people. And that same boy later would be king, and through that line would come King Jesus. And so through David, God brought salvation on this day at Elah that all the earth would know that there is a God in Israel, and that Israel would know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. And yet through David, God would bring salvation beyond this day at Elah, that through Israel, all the families of the earth would be blessed. John Piper puts it this way, the story of David and Goliath is about the existence of God, the salvation of God, and the global mission of God. You see, God alone is supreme. Every victory, every success, every progress in the lives of those who love Him is evidence of His great reign as King in the hearts of His people. A king God is, not by sword or spear, but King by loving kindness and covenant faithfulness and sovereign working and salvation. God alone is true king. Finally and briefly, let's consider a third lesson from this great story of David and Goliath. God is faithful even when we are not. God is faithful even when we are not. You see, there's one more layer of context we need to consider. We've already looked at the redemptive context of God's covenant faithfulness to his people, to preserve them and protect them. But I think it's important to see also God's faithfulness in David's life, even when David himself was not faithful to God. It's a 2 Timothy 2 kind of lesson. You see, if we take a story like 1 Samuel 17 and we just say, be like David, be brave, be like David, have courage, uh, stand tall, slay those giants. We are left with a one-dimensional, moralistic kind of message that just tells us, do better, try harder, breathe a little deeper for the test, uh, be braver. But what happens when the test doesn't go well? What happens when trials and circumstances come? And what happens when you aren't brave? What does that say about the trueness of your faith? We're left in a really weird place if we understand David and Goliath in such a one-dimensional, moralistic kind of way. 
Now I would ask the same question of David's life. What about when we get to the parts in David's life that aren't this shining example of bravery and faithfulness just a couple pages later in your Bible? What about when he commits adultery with Bathsheba? Or what about when he murders Uriah? Uh, What about in 2 Samuel 24 when David high-handedly disobeys God and takes a census on his own accord and counts his possessions? As we've considered David and Goliath, we must consider David not just for his victory and his bravery against the Philistine. Example of faith, the substance of faith, Example that that is, as we've seen. But we must also look for what God does in this instance, in the context of the entirety of David's life. It is the patience and the forgiveness and the steadfast love of Yahweh that David himself describes in Psalm 32. The kind of faith that sees as God sees, and yet that understands the incredible mercy of God that despite failure... David can say, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Grace on campus, the trials and the troubles will come. The failure and the sin in your life will be evident. And in David's life it was, and in ours it will be. These things aren't giants that must fall but evidences of a God who is faithful even when we are faithless. And so God gives David victory here at Elah, not so that he would ride off into the sunset and live a perfect kingly life, but that he would be an imperfect king for God's people, and God would transform him into a man after God's own heart, a man who would lead God's people, and a man that through whom Jesus, the Messiah, would come. Friends, the irony of this story is that it is so widely known, and yet the truth in it is obscured, it is twisted, But the greater irony in this story is, is, not yet, is that this story is not yet doing, in full at least, what verses 46 and 47 claim it would do. This story should serve to show that all the earth would know there is a God in Israel. But what we know of David and Goliath is be brave, have courage. Play those giants. And so, Grace on Campus, would we as God's people who have looked at this story again and see that, that we need to have faith that sees as God sees, would we believe these truths and live forth these truths with great faith that sees as God sees, with faith that honors God as true king alone, with a faith that sees God as faithful even when we are not? And would the way that we live demonstrate to all the earth that there is a God, the God of Israel and the God of all who would call upon his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We are 
so grateful for the truth found in your word. We're thankful because it shows us uh, who you are, a faithful God. And so, Lord, we ask humbly, give us faith. Some of us tonight, even for the first time in a God who sent